Well, good morning, Living Hope Church, and we're glad that you're with us again today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to start reading here in verse 11 in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for this time when we can stop everything else and focus, Father, on worship and on your word. I ask God that your spirit would be present in our hearts and our homes this morning and that, Lord, you would do what only you can do as we read through your word and hear what the spirit has to say to his church today. We ask these things in your magnificent name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 11 and really start digging in in verse 13 in a couple of minutes. But I want us to think about this as we get started. When we give gifts to each other, those gifts can come in a kind of range of things. We can give gifts that are quick and simple and easy to give, or we can give gifts that actually become an expression of ourselves and of a relationship. So sometimes we give gifts that... Um, are quick and easy and they're nice things and they're kind things and we think they might be fun and useful for somebody and those kinds of gifts are great. But sometimes we give gifts that we've actually poured a lot of time and effort and energy into and we intend that gift to express something about ourselves or our relationship. In fact, Pastor Brooks and Pastor Ryan talk about this notion often in our Sunday school classes and through some of their sermons as well. Sometimes the giver is inside of the gift. Now here's part of why that is so important. The passage that we've been going through the last couple of weeks, especially beginning with chapter 4, verse 7 through about verse 16, is really all about God giving gifts to his church. God giving gifts to every spiritual member of his family to accomplish his will. But these gifts that God is giving... They're not just kind of quick and easy, nice things that God gives us. These are gifts that are actually full of the character and the nature and the power of God. They're full of him and what he wants and desires inside of the church. So we can put it like this. It is God's sovereign plan to use imperfect sinners filled with his spirit to live in his kingdom. That's a long sentence. It's full of vocabulary, interesting vocabulary, so we can put it a little bit like this as well. God is up to something inside of his church and up to something deliberate. We have learned that God saves sinners, and then we learn that we discover that we've been made by God to become his kind of masterpiece, and that God puts us together inside of his spiritual family, the church, to accomplish his kinds of goals. So there are really powerful and divine things happening inside of these gifts that God gives the church. Now, in our passage of Scripture today, um, these three thoughts are going to help guide us along the way as we read through what God wants to say to us this morning. And, and the thoughts are this. First, truth and personal knowledge are essential to our unity as a church. Truth and personal knowledge are essential to our unity as a church. It turns out that Paul is going to tell us that we have these gifts so that the church can unify around the person of Jesus Christ. The church is not just another civic organization or a political party. Um, we are designed around who Jesus is. So it turns out that our goal in our growth and our maturity 
is the kingdom of God. Not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of God. So truth and personal knowledge are essential to our unity as the church of Jesus Christ. And then secondly is this. We were actually made to grow. Just like the biological and psychological realities of growth and maturity, so you and I are expected to grow up into the likeness of our Heavenly Father. Spiritual maturity needs to be a natural act for the Christian. Something that's just as natural as normal biological growth. So we were actually made to grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. And then third is this. We speak the truth in love. It's a powerful little phrase in this section, and I love it. We speak the truth in love. You see, what is false is spoken with cunning and deceit and manipulation in mind. Lies need to be made to look like the truth. That's how falsehood is spoken. But the people of God speak the truth of God, and we can speak it actually in love. And we learn as well that the church itself is built up in this really unique gift that God gives of himself, God's kind of love. So we speak the truth in love. Well, guys, let's begin reading Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 11, and we're going to really start paying attention here in verse 13. But let's get a little bit of context Ephesians 4 verse 11 goes like this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God has given all these gifts to the church to equip the rest of the body for ministry and for the edification of the church. And then Paul goes on to say this, until we all attain to the unity the faith and the knowledge that there is in the Son of God. Now, notice the focus of these gifts is on the church. Now, of course, this is intended to happen in every one of our individual lives, but this is we language. This is us language. Until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So, what God is giving, again, is about the growth of the church and how every one of us can be a significant and helpful and useful part of what God wants to accomplish inside of his church. So God fills the church with his character, with his nature, with his power when he gives us gifts. So we find ourselves anchored in one thing, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is our bedrock. This is the goal of our lives, the person and the work in the, of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes the way the language works, and Paul sometimes writes in these great big long convoluted sentences, and he speaks of attaining to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Sometimes the vocabulary sort of slips past us because it gets a little bit convoluted in the English. But the point of this phrase is, is really pretty straightforward. The intention of God giving us these gifts is so that we may attain unity 
in Jesus Christ. That's where our unity is, is in Jesus Christ. And that unity is comprised of our faith and of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's a unity of faith and knowledge, all of it found in and grounded in Jesus Christ. So let's think about these two ideas, faith and knowledge, for a couple of minutes. So faith, this is our trust in Jesus Christ. And this trust comes from our conviction, our belief, that the things we read and learn about Jesus Christ are true. The story about him is true. The things he speaks to us about who he is and God is and what life should be like. We believe these things to be true. So this trust, this faith in Jesus Christ is about right belief, who he really is, because that makes a difference. We're not allowed to come to Jesus Christ with our own preconceived notions and overlay them on top of Jesus and then use our beliefs to talk about Jesus. We come to him to hear about who he is and that's what's supposed to form and shape us. So we find this unity in faith in Jesus Christ, right belief about who Jesus truly is. So we're finding unity in faith. And then he says we find unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now that's also, I think, really provocative. And there are several ways of understanding the kinds of knowledge that we have. And stick with me for a minute because I think this will actually be revealing for us as we think about it. We can talk about different kinds of knowledge. So we can talk about this. We can talk about what we call sometimes knowledge that or we know that something is the case. This is the way that we just kind of know facts or details, true things about the the list of presidents of the United States or certain scientific details. We know that this is true and that this is the case. We can also talk about what's called know-how. This is a technical knowledge. This is the ability to know how to do something to be able to code in a certain kind of computer language and make something actually work or to plumb a house. This is know-how. This is technical knowledge. We can also talk about know-who or personal knowledge. This is the way we get to know especially somebody through experience and through relationship. And when we talk about the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're especially aimed at this notion of relationship, the kind of knowledge that only comes through experience with Jesus Christ, relationship with Jesus Christ. So this becomes, these two things, faith and this kind of knowledge, can become actually a very powerful connection in our lives, individually and as the body of Christ, as the church, and the connection between these two things, between true belief and personal knowledge. When those things come together, it can become a powerful combination in the lives of God's people. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's start with a rather simple example. I'm, I'm wearing a watch this morning. And so I could tell you a little bit about this watch, the, 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 the maker, the size, the movement. I could give you some details about the watch and that might be interesting to you. And so you know that this is a certain kind of watch. Now, there are some people out there who have the skill of knowing how to build and repair these things. They're very intricate pieces of equipment. That's know-how. That's technical knowledge. 
Now, if you owned this watch or one like it, then you could tell me what your experience of it was like. How does it feel? Do you like it? Do you not like it? That's a kind of personal understanding of what an object like this is like. Now, that's a simple example, but let's make this example a little bit more significant. I could tell you a little bit about my wife, Heather's, her favorite foods um, and her favorite places to eat. And if I've done my homework well and I actually get it right and I tell you she really enjoys this kind of food or these kinds of places to eat, then you now, now, you now have what we would call true belief or right knowledge about these details about Heather. They're true and they're facts and, and you know them. And when you think about those things, for most of you, it's, it's just know that. You just have these details in your head about my wife Heather, what she likes to eat, and where she or we really enjoy eating. When I think about those things, they actually come with memories. They actually sometimes come with emotions. They sometimes even come with significant moments in our lives. Can you feel the difference between those two things? The simple details that are true, that are right, but we combine those things with experience and relationship. And what does that mean? That means then you put those two things together and we have a relationship that is, that is growing, that is becoming deeper, that is becoming even more significant. We feel, we just know the difference when we add relationship and experience to the truth about somebody. And so it is with Jesus Christ. We can know certain details about him, and maybe we can even accurately say this is true about Jesus, and we might be right about those things. But then you begin to connect that to the experience of Jesus Christ, the relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ, and something powerful begins to happen. And what's the difference between these two things? It's obvious. It's relationship. And when they come together, what comes of that is a deepening of relationship, growth in that relationship. And so this is exactly the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul then talks about as he moves from unity and faith and knowledge about Jesus Christ, he begins to use this imagery of growth. So look at what he says next here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is a great word picture that he uses. And I think we get the sense that what he means is, is we're talking about spiritual maturity. We're growing in that relationship with Christ. We're moving from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity and adulthood. But the vocabulary that he uses, I think, is really provocative. It's wonderful. It's the same vocabulary that he or someone else in his culture would have used to talk about the way a child literally grows up to look like their parents. So when you would speak of growing up into mature manhood or mature adulthood, it's the way you would talk about a son or a daughter who starts off small and short and over time grows up to look like their, their parents, their mom or their dad. And so Paul uses this very natural language to say that this becomes a part of our lives and we're intended to just actually grow up into 
the image of our Heavenly Father, the image of Jesus Christ. The longer that we do this, we're supposed to look more like Jesus, sound more like Jesus, bear this family resemblance. And so here we see it again, uh, even just in the metaphor that Paul uses. It should be natural for the Christian to grow up into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to go grow up into the image of our Heavenly Father. In fact, this passage of Scripture is loaded with growth language. It's really only just a handful of verses, but if you kind of pull that language out of this, it's, it's quite a bit for just four or five verses. We're talking about mature adulthood. We're talking about no longer being children. He talks about growing up into Christ. He's going to later on, again, use the image of a body and how it's joined together and growing up to what it is supposed to be. So this passage is full of that language. It needs to become natural for us to grow up into Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is also a master of mixing his metaphors. So he's talking about growth. And then in the next verse, he uses the image of a ship um, at sea in the middle of a storm. And so he goes on to say this in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Why is it so important that it should be natural for the Christian to be spiritually maturing, growing up into the image of Jesus Christ? Because Paul says here in this passage of Scripture, the spiritually immature are taken in by untruth. The less connected we are to the truth about Christ and our relationship and experience with him, if, if that is a loose connection we find ourselves as spiritually immature people. And Paul says, well, then you're vulnerable. And anybody who comes along and they can, they can put the falsehood, a falsehood in the right language, you're just going to be blown off course. Like, like a ship in storm without an anchor, you're just, who knows where you're going to end up. So it's vital for us, uh, for our maturity to become natural, to be anchored in our unity and who Jesus Christ is. So the spiritually immature are carried away with falsehoods about Christ that look like the truth. The, the vocabulary, again, that Paul uses is important for us to hear and understand. The New Living Translation takes part of verse 15 and puts it like this. They trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. I've said this before, and it's important in this context. Falsehood about Jesus Christ does not come with a disclaimer. In fact, the vast majority of the time, it's going to sound like the truth and feel like the truth. And there's going to be something inside of us, if we're not careful, that is attracted to it and drawn to it. This is actually a real problem. It was a problem for Paul and the church 2,000 years ago, and it's a problem for us now, especially when access to false teachers is so easy, both through traditional media and TV and social media and YouTube and so forth. And guys, so often these false teachers, they have huge popular programs. They have huge followings on social media. They are well-produced. It looks good and it sounds good. 
And if we're not careful with our maturity, if we're not careful with our walk in Christ, if we're not connected to the body that is supposed to help us with this, we are so easily drawn away and blown off course by falsehood. Paul talks about this kind of problem in just about every letter he writes. Um, one of my favorite places is when he writes to uh, the church in the city of Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul puts it like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is not warning you against philosophy or, or good thinking. He's warning you against philosophies that are not according to Christ. They're not anchored and rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. But instead, they're full again of that language. Empty deceit and cunning. Guys, for falsehood to be accepted as the truth, there needs to be some form of trickery involved. In fact, there has to be manipulation. For the falsehood to be spoken and accepted as truth, Guys, it's manipulation on two levels. It's manipulation of the truth itself, the truth of Jesus Christ and the way God's put the world together, and it's manipulation of you. That's how falsehood works. So that's why it's so important for the Apostle Paul to see you've got to be careful with that. Be anchored in Christ. So falsehood is spoke, spoken, it's taught with cunning and deceitful schemes and empty and vain and hollow philosophies. But the very next thing that Paul says is that the truth can actually be an act of love. So let's go back into Ephesians chapter 4. Let's finish out this little section in verses 15 and 16. He says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love this phrase. But rather, instead of all of that, instead of the deceit and the manipulation that comes with falsehood, instead of the spiritual immaturity that is drawn into that, we're different. Instead of that, we actually speak the truth in love. This is a significant moment for the follower of Jesus Christ and understanding what the body is for and understanding why God is giving his gifts to the church. Part of it is we speak the truth in love. So instead of uh, the hucksters and the manipulators that are out there, we strive to speak the truth about how God created all things, the universe, and how God created us. And we have absolutely no reason to manipulate it. We have no reason to manipulate the truth of what God says. And Christian teachers and pastors and leaders have no reason to manipulate you when they speak it. Because when we speak the truth of Jesus Christ, I firmly believe as a pastor and teacher, and I've been doing this for a while now, what we are doing is we are opening up the atmosphere for the Spirit of God to be at work inside of people's lives. 
It's not manipulation on my part or our part. It is simply the laying out of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its glory and in all of its power. No need to manipulate. We just allow the Spirit of God to do what He wants to do. So we can speak it in love. And we need both of these things when we do it. We need truth and we need love. We need both of these. If we speak truth without love, that can often become abrasive or even abusive sometimes. And sometimes it means we end up demeaning the people that we are talking to if it's all truth and no love. But then on the flip side of that coin, if it's all love and no truth, that can very quickly degrade into unthinking acceptance uh, for what anybody wants to do, and we end up allowing people to destroy their lives living out falsehood. That's what happens when we show love without the truth of Christ and what he's called us to do and what life can really be like. Guys, Christian love and our culture's notion of tolerance are not the same thing. We speak truth and we can do it in love. So the people of God, we are people of the truth. We love the truth. And one of the reasons we love it is that we know that we've been saved by it. We love it because we've been given mercy every single day. The truth of the mercy of God and his forgiveness and his glory and his power. When we come to terms with these things, we fall in love with the truth. We treasure it. And guys, it is my experience that the more that we find unity in, in right faith and, and knowledge, the more that we find the truths of Jesus Christ and love them, the more we learn to not just notice falsehood, but the more we learn to despise it because we know how much damage it does. We know how much it separates people from Jesus Christ and his gospel and from salvation and from life with him now and life with him for all of eternity. We are people of the truth. One of my favorite authors is George MacDonald, and he was a Scottish pastor and theologian about 130 years ago. And he writes really well about the truth. And one little sentence of his stuck out to me as I was thinking through this this week. He says this, All truth understood becomes duty. <laughs> I like that. All truth understood becomes duty. So we understand the truth of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't just become something that's precious to us personally, which it is. It becomes a motivator for our lives. It becomes a motivator for our relationships. It actually turns into the things that we do. It turns into the things that we want to do. All truth understood becomes duty. All truth is God's truth, and so it becomes our duty as members of the body of Christ to live out the gifts that God has given us, to accomplish his goals, to accomplish his will in his kingdom. And the last thought that Paul gives us in this little section, right? We speak the truth in love and we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. He is the executive center of the church. He is the unity of the church from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, this is this image of everybody doing their part, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
two thoughts here on these last few phrases. This again is imagery of every part of the body doing its job. Not just, again, the ones that we think are uniquely gifted uh, spiritually or to do X, Y, and Z kinds of roles inside of the church. But this is we language. This is whole body language. All of us are being joined together and growing up as a body into the image of Jesus Christ. So this is provocative to me. What if you and what you do as part of the church and your involvement in the body of Christ, what if you become a critical part of my faith and my knowledge in the Son of God? The role that you play, whatever that is, becomes critical to the growth of my faith, my trust, my understanding of Christ, my knowledge, my experience of who Jesus is. This isn't a one-way street. This is a two-way street in the body of Christ. You become critical. Every other member of the body, when it comes to us, building each other up in love. And the second thought here has to do with the gift of love. So the love that is expressed in the church of Jesus Christ is an expression of this gift that God gives, this gift of love that is full of the giver, the character and the nature of the one who gives it. We are aimed at expressing and growing in this unique and divine love that is God's kind of love. So this is a gift that God gives all of us, his church, that is full of his character and nature, his power, and his desire for our lives. Listen to how the disciple John puts this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This gift of love that the church is growing in is a gift that is full of the character and the nature and the power of God. What a beautiful thing that God himself has given us. So the question is this, guys. Who are we growing up to look like right now? And I actually mean right now. I don't just mean over the last, you know, five years of our lives and the faith or, you know, through the rest of our lives and the past leading up to this point. I mean actually right now. Who are we growing up to look like? Whose image are we reflecting? Whose family resemblance are people going to see inside of our lives? You see, guys, during times of uncertainty and difficulty, it is easy to revert to what the culture around us makes most plausible. It is easy for us to slip into that. It's comfortable. It's easy, every, so to speak. Everyone around us is seeing it this way. And when things are difficult, we're looking for a place to sort of stand, things to hang on to that are sure and secure. And it's easy to slip into what our culture thinks is plausible. And if we're not careful, those things become the dominant influences in our hearts and in our minds. But what if something else is possible? What if there's a different set of gifts? What if there's a different way of looking at life that actually finds us anchored in, unified in, 
these cosmic, divine, eternal, unchanging truths about Jesus Christ. What if, while things are maybe the most difficult for us, we find ourselves anchored in Jesus Christ? We find ourselves growing up into the image of Christ and who he is and what he has called us to be. As individuals, as families, as a church, may we grow up to look more and more like Jesus Christ through this deliberate process of paying attention to him, through this process of, of learning and figuring out and exercising the gifts that God has given us, church, especially the love that God has given us to grow into. And friends, more and more, we as individuals, we as families, and we as the church of Jesus Christ will look more like Christ, and more and more we will be the kind of hope that this world so desperately needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for this time, and I pray that the words that have been spoken and heard today are not simply a matter of, of what I have said or written down, but are a matter of what the Holy Spirit wants to speak and do in the lives of your church. Father, prompt us. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our lives to what you would do in your church and how through this season of life we would become more like you so the world around us can see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We ask these things by your grace and by your gift and by your power. Amen.